Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here. Okay, today I'm happy to share with you my second installment of my four-part conversation with yin yoga master Paul Greeley. The focus of this interview series is on Paul's new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. And for most of the interview, we spend very little time discussing yin yoga itself. The topic of yin yoga does come up towards the end of this interview, so please be patient for that. In the meantime, in today's episode, we jump right into Paul's understanding of how the spiritual path unfolds. For the curious listener, Paul's model of spiritual awakening is deeply rooted in the classical yogic text of Patanjali, known as the Yoga Sutra, as well as later developments in the yoga tradition known as Tantric Yoga. While I'm aware of the themes in these traditions, my own practice has been predominantly rooted in various forms of Buddhist practice. But what was so interesting to me about this section of my conversation with Paul was just how conversant these two systems could be with one another. In the past, I must confess to thinking that these paths were somewhat divergent from one another and that they led to very different outcomes. But in listening to Paul here, I came to see the potential for how they might be integrated together. Or as my friend Chip Hartraff says, Patanjali and Buddha are really just brothers separated at birth. Okay, with all that preamble aside, I now once again bring you Paul Greeley. In so if 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 we're, if we're defining the human predicament of suffering as one of a, a confusion or misappropriated identity with some facet of the of consciousness say the content of consciousness and extricating consciousness from identification this is where i think you lay out in your book a path for how a yogi yogini can actualize that uh that uh, i want to say disidentification or sort of untanglement with 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 the experiences or with with the vrittis um, so, so maybe why don't if you can start to go, I'll ask you to go into how that unfolds in someone's journey, and if that's too uh, broad, we can we can try to narrow it down a little bit. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start, and if it doesn't quite speak to the way yeah. you, you would like this to go, feel free to interrupt me. Um, I believe that the, the can I interrupt you now? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. That's that's rude. Okay. <laughs> I believe that um, that uh, introspection is hastened by the ability to withdraw the energy into your spine, and that there are outward physical signs of this accomplishment, and that asana, pranayama, mantra, um, uh, and visualization exercises all accelerate this this internalization, and that. Once this energy becomes internalized, then actually the true deep uh, meditation processes start. I think that that until we can actually do that, we say we're meditating, we're trying to meditate. But I think that in Patanjali's ladder, um, those are noble efforts. But until you are, until your energy is introspective and your even sensory stimuli is voluntarily uh, stopped because you have withdrawn the chi from your senses and it's now in your spine. 
that's a milestone event. That's Pratyahara. And I believe that um, much like the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, uh, chakra meditation is, is there a way to hasten us to the point of Pratyahara? And actually, I'm, I'm appreciating you using the word hasten, because as you probably know, uh, there's a fair amount of partisan bickering between different traditions. And the ways that some of that bickering comes out is that um, there's either an assertion that one tradition has a more complete realization than the previous tradition or a different tradition, and or a tradition is the faster track than the other tradition. And I, I experience this in Buddhism because I'm in the proverbial slow boat to China, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, mostly the Theravada tradition. Um, so so I, I'm just picking up the word hasten there, like, oh, the, this is going to hasten my, my evolution. Um, but... You, you, so you talk about withdrawing the energy, the, 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 the yogi withdraws their energy into the spine, correct? Yes. What does that, how does one do that? And what is the, what is the experience of that like? Well, it has gradual stages to it. And I can't speak to the a perfect completion of it, but I've had intimations of it over the years. And um, the first... Uh, level is that you're no longer distracted by your body and sometimes your body doesn't even feel like it has weight or has a boundary and that's sort of the first like oh, you, oh I'm starting to succeed now and I, if I use modern terms the chi that's circulating around my proprioceptive nerves is withdrawing and so my sense of proprioception is being dulled and then eventually as you get better at that that's a stage one kind of thing and uh, as you get better at that, this energy will first go to your heart in the chakra tradition. It's the heart that controls the outward flow of chi. There are other flows of chi that the heart doesn't control. But the outward, particularly the sensory uh, chi, is controlled by the heart. Mm-hmm. And so as you get better at proprioception, you start to actually feel your consciousness dropping into your heart. Normally our consciousness, we think we're in our head. And you actually start to feel yourself sort of either you're dropping down to there or the heart is sort of expanding and including your head. And that's about as deep as I've ever gone in successful Pratyahara. But according to Yogananda, more specifically, um, what happens is that as you get really, really good at that, then your heartbeat will start to stop or slow down. And when you get to that point, it's also reflected in your breathing. And your breathing can go to a point where you can't even tell if you're breathing. Now, me, subjectively, um, I've gotten to the point where I can, watching my breath, it's like I'm, I'm surprised myself that I'm still being conscious because the breath is maybe two breaths a minute, if I'm lucky. Hmm. But I can't stay there long enough. Dr. Motoyama says specifically, if you can stay in one or two breaths per minute for minutes and minutes, and it varies from person to person. But if you can stay there for a long time, long is what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, he's not so clear about that, then eventually you will gain control over your heart and you will become sensorily withdrawn. It would take an effort to hear the outside world. It would take an effort to see because you're in this the, the cave of the heart. Mm-hmm. And that would be a pratyahara. And so subjectively, you're having this experience of being in the cave of your heart. Objectively is that you might have no pulse or very little pulse, and you might have no breathing for long periods of time, 
are very, very, very minor, you know, volume changes in periods of time. That's really interesting. Let me, again, I'm going to be doing a little bit of replay here, see if I can get it. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's the, the, the control of the breath that is the, the way the yogini or yogi can leverage the activity of the heart's chi to draw it into itself and, and to prevent the kind of the, the diversification or the spreading of the chi throughout the, the rest of the body. That it, it's, it's the vis-a-vis the breath that the heart chi is regulated to the point that it can, that the chi starts to flow into the heart cave, as you're saying. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that, that's correct. Yeah. And, and of course, I know you know this, but listeners, as you're explaining this, I'm realizing that's, that there's, there's definitely a sympathetic overlap in Chinese medicine where the chi, the, the, the chest, the pectoral, the zong chi controls both the heart and the lungs. So there is that, that parallel or overlapping uh, functioning of the chi and the chest there that seems to be at play in what you're describing. So when, the, when you kind of got to it a little bit, but in that experience of being in the cave in the heart, I, I'm, I'm thinking it through in terms of sort of ph- phenomenological experience. I've had meditation coming at it from different angles and I are coming at it from a different door. Um, and what you're describing to me sounds like it, it sits somewhere in the spectrum of different samadhi states that occur that I'm familiar with through Buddhism, where there might be a sense of, of expansion of self and that the world is arising within the sense of self or that, to use your language more, the world's arising in the heart. Um, but I think what one of the stylistic or critical differences is the, the levels of experience, the types of experiences that are still known. Like in, the, in, the, in certain Buddhist samadhi states, there would still be knowledge or sensory awareness of sounds like a bird chirping or a leaf blower going or maybe a twinge in your knee that wouldn't be violated within that open space. Like or the, the open space wouldn't be violated by any of that, those arisings. Um, and I'm just wondering if in your map or in, your, in, your, in the territory of what you're describing, would there still be any of that external awareness? And, and I'm picking up on the word pratihara, which is withdrawal of the senses. Um, or is that more in the range of where sounds, garden variety sensations, thoughts, those have all subsided within the quiescent state of the heart? Uh, I think it's the latter in Patanjali, is that you would not hear the birds chirping. But I would preface that, that uh, Patanjali's system, as you go through these stages of samadhi as well, as you describe in Buddhism, Patanjali has stages of samadhi, seven of them. Mm -hmm. And that uh, all of the lower stages of samadhi require this trance. You know, and the, going into the heart is a form of trance. From the on the inside, I'm active and alert, but from the outside, you go like, "Oh, Paul's in a trance." Right, right. He's wasting his time. He's in a trance, and you're like, "Maybe that's what it looks like to you," but I'm on the inside. These are all called savikalpa samadhis, these lower samadhis, and that's where you need to be in a trance to experience them. But the highest form of samadhi you just described, and that's nirvikalpa samadhi. Whereas whatever it is, the nature of the self that I discover in trance, now in the highest state of samadhi of realization and in potentially seventh stage of samadhi, mm-hmm. you would have an experience of the birds chirping and all that kind of stuff. Again, you could again operate from this vehicle or a higher vehicle or many vehicles 
but you would never again, you would not, your experience wouldn't be the same because as, as you put it, you'd be taking in these sensory experiences of laughter and joy and pain and all this kind of stuff, but it would not touch, it would not pollute, it would not diminish this higher state. So I think the state that you describe is higher than, than, um, than um, Pratyahara. Mm. I think Pratyahara is a trance-like, it's a self-induced trance of intense introspection. Yeah. And what you're describing is, I'm not limited to a trance. Right. I don't need to shut out my awareness of my body to operate. And until you can do that, according to Patanjali, you are not enlightened. Right. You need to be able to reach and maintain this sense of self or in the Buddhist non-self state and then operate through a, a body or whatever it is that you're invigorating. It could be a planet or a star in my metaphysics. But you never, never, never fall into the illusion again that that is what you are and that these ups and downs of life and death are affecting this higher thing that you sort of reach the mountain, you gain the mountain, and now I can come back down on the mountain. But I never lose the view that I had when I was at the top of the mountain. Right. Right. There's, uh, there's a lot there, actually, that um, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm, part, of the, part of my mind is melting down because I'm realizing that what you just said in some ways, I think, and I'll have to listen to it when I produce this episode but listen and listen back i think what you're solving for me is a false sense of different paths between patanjali and buddhism in terms of the ultimate realization in the sense i through study and my own research kind of came to the, the feeling that the buddha and patanjali diagnose uh, our predicament in a similar way that we're in a world of changing flux and, and impermanence, and because of that, whenever we attach to any impermanent condition, we are bound to suffer. So they diagnose the issue in a similar way. They just offer seemingly different, on the, at least on the surface, seemingly different uh, prescriptions to bring about the resolution of that suffering. I interpreted uh, Patanjali as suggesting that uh, freedom is, is attained through a deep realization of a higher self that's that's eternal, that's, that's, that's permanent, that is bliss. Um, and so that, to me, is often codified with the term of a, or the idea of a transcendent path. You're transcending this world. And Buddhism is often framed, at least the way I've been exposed to it, Buddhism is framed as you're not transcending this world. Your freedom is predicated on a deeper understanding of the very nature, which will condition you to let go of holding on to specific patterns that cause suffering. But in the at the end, I think they they kind of it seems like they they might even have different pathways into it, into the resolution. But I, I want to come back to this with you at some point, and we might get into it now. But the idea this nirvikalpa samadhi, where there is a aspect of of your experience right now, everyone's experience right now, that is absolutely free, and you can go up the mountain as you described in the yogic path realize the view of the top of the mountain and and I, I think in best case scenario descend the mountain and never forget that view from that day on like you you have that knowledge of the view of who you are what you are independent of changing conditions and that view never never really erodes i think in certain forms of buddhism they 
they more or less try to go directly to that view and 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 and, say, and not really get into the specifics of a progressive realization of that view. Like they, they sort of say, we're going to point to the view right now. Like it's it's hiding in plain sight on the surface of every experience. It's not embedded deep in, 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 in the nature of experience. It's right on the surface once you learn how to look for it in a particular way. Um, but I think what I'm getting from what you're saying is that ac- that, that, that um, concept of nerva kalpa samadhi kind of unites the two of them because you have that the consciousness that's unidentified with form or unidentified with content um, and is not confused about its relationship to the, those experiences anymore and I yes know. I think that's I think that's correct I can't speak to you know how that overlaps with Buddhism I'm acquainted with Buddhism but I, I, I would not want to misrepresent it by so I just have to you know acknowledge the way that you describe it is I think basically correct we can quibble over I think it's subtly different than you've seen the top of the mountain and you never forget it as you come down. I think that the, Dr. Motiyama says the actual enlightened state is a paradox that you actually never leave the top of the mountain. The true self never leaves the top of the mountain. Its view is absolute and forever. But at the same time, the little self that you, you thought was you can right. walk down the mountain. <laughs> and so... To me, these are quibbles, and since I'm really not enlightened, I don't like to, you know, split hairs too much. But in general, from what I know of Buddhism and how you described it, I, I've never been trapped by the idea that different traditions lead to different places. Right. And this is where, I mean, I'm sure you've had these conversations where, in, in simplistic form, it, it can take the form of, do all paths truly lead to the same summit? Or is it one path or one mountain, many paths, that kind of view? Or are there actual different paths that lead to different summits? My view is that there are, there are different paths and that you stop at certain levels on this one mountain and you say you're at the top. And it's like, no, you're not at the top. You can go higher. Mm, yeah. That's my view. of it. We're not on separate mountains. We're on different little crags of the same mountain. And if we all went a little higher, because I, I think that technique can only take you so far, whatever the tradition and, and potentially as a set of techniques like any other. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that world where you've already achieved your pratyahara, you've already, you know, then how you deal with the vrittis that come up, your self-created karmic vrittis and other things. I think that's so incredibly uniquely personal that the only way you'd ever find your way to whatever it is, is you got to have the courage to go beyond, you know, your tradition and you got to you know, step off. And I think some tra- traditions are sparse in their instruction, yeah. as, as you indicated. And for some mindsets, that's actually better because in other traditions, you know, I really like the step by step. What's the physiology, even if it's an esoteric physiology behind it. But, you know, I tried to share that with other people at the time, and they just become fatigued by it. They become annoyed by it. And they go, like, I have, to, I have to think about all of that. I just want this. And so I think whether you come from a sparsely technical tradition or a really detailed tradition, they can both point you to the same place and lift you to a certain place until your own individual effort will take over and it'll be this pathless tract. Mm-hmm. Or they can both go in a bad way. 
they can both go into you just you know just you know how many forms of pranayama can i do right you know so, and then this one over here it's like you're already enlightened why are you trying <laughs> yeah well, well no, you know in a, <laughs> I, I get the humor but there is a there's almost as i survey things i see a kind of a developmental um spectrum of technologies that are better suited to people depending on where they are on their spectrum of development on, on the spectrum of development so you know a more directive generative specific type practice might serve someone at a particular stage in their in their path um and then at a certain point that will only get you so far and you could be in a real cul-de-sac if you just stay within that particular technique um and and kind of become a little bit of an automaton just doing what I call spiritual technic technical work, like become a spiritual technician, and it doesn't really necessarily move you into deeper terrain or deeper levels of your being. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think this will come up when we get, when we try to, I think towards the end, when I try to bring in um, how yin, you see yin yoga fitting in with this process. But in general, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, I've been within that uh, developmental spectrum of evolution of the self. I feel like there are stages where it feels like a bottom-up process, where the individuals doing things, and I think this is encrypted or encoded in, in Patanjali's Ashtanga Eightfold Path, where you, you start out doing things, you regulate your behavior, you regulate your ethics, you regulate your your breathing, you regulate your body um, in a bottom-up way. But at a certain point, the nature of yourself, the nature of consciousness starts to reveal itself. And it's no longer about you, the, the yogi or yogini doing stuff to realize it. It's more you're getting pulled up from the top, top up. You're being pulled up from the top in a way um, into a, a, a bigger realization. And that's where I think technique, you know, scripted formulas kind of fall or slough off at that point. Yeah, I agree completely. I think that's true. I think that um, I think that you reach a point where you're sort of, if I use a Christian or uh, or Dr. Moti, Dr. Motiyama uh, was a Shinto, but his language was very similar to what you do describe, and it's that there's sort of this self-effort to draw out of your body, but at a certain point in these higher stages, it's there are beings trying to pull you up to the next, to the next, to the next. And the struggle there is to, Dr. Matiyama said, you must die to yourself. Mm -hmm. If you would die to yourself, your present, what you think you are, then these beings can pull you up. And I think that's something very different than what you call the bottom-up approach, where I'm going to lift myself. Right. Um, and I believe that it's, that I agree with you that, that you have to do that, but there's, depending on your, you know, spiritual genius, your karma from the past, there comes a point where the techniques will take you to this place, and then you need to get into this, you know, the Christian language would be self-crucifixion. Yeah. You need to give up what you think you are, and God will pull you higher. And I think that uh, that would be what you described as I'm being pulled up. And yeah. so at one point, we're pushing the rock. And at the other point, we've got to allow these other things to lift us. Okay, we'll pause the conversation there and 
picking up where Paul just left off, I'd like you to consider over the coming weeks, what in your practice are the elements analogous to pushing a rock up a hill? And where perhaps are the intimations of a higher grace, the higher forces that Paul was referring to that are helping to pull you up the hill? In the next installment, Paul shares some of what his own practice looks like after decades of introspection. And then we explore the specific role that the chakras play in the evolution of consciousness. There's much more good stuff to come from Paul Greeley, so please stay tuned. In the meantime, check out his new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. There's a link for you in the show notes as well as a link to Paul's website. And if you would like to study or train in yin yoga with me this year, please check out my calendar of events on my site at www.joshsummers.net forward slash events, where you'll find up-to-date listings of the trainings, workshops, and retreats that Terry Coburn and I offer in our yin yoga school. Okay, that's it for today, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thanks so much for listening.